This production is brought to you by Vantage House. Hi folks, today is October 28th, and if there's a very important election in Brazil this weekend, then this is a special edition of The Delft. I want to paint a picture for you. The year is 2016. Justin Bieber released his chart-topping song, Sorry, and Leonardo DiCaprio finally won an Oscar. But most importantly, the world had its eyes on Rio de Janeiro for the 2016 Olympics. This was the first time the Games had ever set foot in South America, with almost 3.2 billion viewers feasting their eyes on world-class athletes. Rio was the star of the summer. Now, while most of us were enamored with the grandiose games and were watching the young Simone Biles make her jaw-dropping Olympic debut, Brazil was undergoing political turmoil and economic corruption during a horrible recession that would ultimately shape the questionable future of Brazil's leadership. So what exactly has brought us to one of the most critical Brazilian presidential elections in recent times? This story takes us back to 2010, when Dilma Rousseff runs for president. Rousseff served as Brazil's 36th president from 2011 to 2016, the first woman to hold this position. She was incredibly fit for the job, with an extensive political background, and her reasonably left-wing policies made her a popular candidate. She received 56% of the votes, solidifying her victory. She even managed to earn an approval rating of 79% during her first term. However, this all came crashing down during her second term in 2015, when Operation Lava Jato, or Car Wash, came to light. Launched in 2014, Operation Car Wash was an investigation by the federal police into doleros, aka black market money dealers that use small businesses to launder money from crimes. This scheme, which was first discovered at a car wash, soon turned into one of the greatest corruption scandals ever, connecting some of the wealthiest and most influential people in Brazil in a web of crime and corruption. In this case, the Doleros were committed on behalf of executives at Petrobras, Brazil's national oil company, where they would purposely overpay contractors who had agreed to put between 1% and 5% of their profit into secret slush funds, these funds were then funneled to the politicians and parties that gave these executives power as a ploy to keep them all in command. At first, this may not seem like a big deal, but the overarching issue is that the money that facilitated this entire scheme came straight from taxpayers and shareholders. The even more absurd part was that these politicians and executives went to such lengths to cover the source of the money that they were buying ornate goods from Rolexes, yachts, and even expensive art utilizing Swiss banks, and or even using elderly folks as transportation mules by strapping wads of cash to their bodies to travel to various cities. Soon this case imploded, with 429 individuals indicted in 18 major companies in 11 different countries involved, 6.2 billion hiaish, around $2.2 billion, misappropriated. Understandably, the public was livid. Protest of almost 7 million people broke out condemning the actions of Brazil's leaders. Moreover, 
many people felt betrayed by the governing party as they promised to work against corruption, but instead fell prey to it. Ultimately, Rousseff was impeached, but this did not ease tensions nor give people much faith in the government. In the aftermath of the impeachment, Brazil saw two years of Michel Temer, a mostly unpopular figure who did little to ease tensions caused by the scandals. Then came the 2018 presidential election. At a point when the Workers' Party was still reeling from the fallout of the economic crisis and the ongoing Lava Jato investigations, Brazil was at something of a crossroads. Enter Jair Bolsonaro. Jair Bolsonaro at the time was a longtime Brazilian congressman who had been representing Rio de Janeiro in the National Congress since the early 90s. Prior to his political career, he was a captain in the army before quitting due to being put on trial for allegedly planting bombs in military units. After a short stint as a Rio councilman, Bolsonaro the congressman established himself as a hardline social conservative opposing abortion, homosexuality, gun control, and drug legalization while supporting traditional values. In the 2018 presidential election, Bolsonaro played on the public's frustration with the recent corruption scandals to galvanize support around his evangelical, conservative, and populist message. He also became the first candidate to raise over 1 million Hyaish in donations. The campaign proved incredibly divisive due to Bolsonaro's violent anti-communist rhetoric and far-right reputation. Bolsonaro himself was stabbed in the abdomen while campaigning in Jewish Tafora, an instance of political violence not normally seen in Brazilian politics. The Workers' Party attempted to prevent Bolsonaro's election by fielding former Sao Paulo Mayor Fernando Hadaji, but the tide was against them. Bolsonaro was swept into power with his social liberal party, winning majorities in both houses of Congress. Since then, Bolsonaro, as president, has brought a much more capitalistic economy to a country generally more used to social democracy, with respects particularly to private development and illegal mining in the Amazon. Bolsonaro has let these interests run rampant at the expense of indigenous communities and the planet as a whole. What could be done to prevent Bolsonaro from winning a second term? Former President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, popularly known as Lula, has the best chance to stop him. Released from prison last year on corruption charges that were nullified by the Supreme Court, Lula is also a figure not so adored by all. Brazil has a runoff system for president if neither candidate gets over 50%. The polling had shown Lula beating Bolsonaro by a landslide. What actually happened was a less than five point difference. Bolsonaro won the majority of votes in big states like Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. It looks like bad polling is a global phenomenon. Now we have another round of elections coming up on Sunday, October 30th. Experts and locals say this is one of the most unpredictable elections in Brazilian history. There is a chance that Bolsonaro could pull this off, which would spell disaster for the environment, Brazil's education system, indigenous communities, and perhaps democracy itself. I had the pleasure of speaking with two amazing guests to help break down the situation. Laurie Tatanen is a senior associate non-resident with the Americas program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. For several years, he lectured on Latin American history at Harvard, my old school, and is an expert on Brazilian external relations and political economy. Adriana Ramos is coordinator of the Socio-Environmental Policy and Law Program at the Socio-Environmental Institute, which is part of the Climate Observatory Network. 
This institute is focused on environmental causes with special dedication to indigenous peoples. These were really engaging conversations, but perhaps the most interesting part, and unexpected, was their differing predictions for who would win this election. Let's listen in. Laurie, thank you so much for coming on The Delve. I'm so excited for this conversation. I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump into this list of questions. So considering that, you know, we're talking about Brazil, I, you know, probably should preface with, you know, my relationship with Brazil. I was there first as a, as an exchange student in the very, very late days of the 1990s, and then ended up doing my PhD on uh, the history of Brazil and did some of my research, you know, in Brazil as well. And, you know, basically have been taking ever since, you know, both sort of academic perspectives in Brazil, reading a lot about Brazil, spending time there, of course, as well. But, you know, then also more recently dealing with the sort of current affairs, political risk type of questions, as well as trying to, you know, focus in on Brazil's role in uh, many sort of global sustainability and energy questions. Perfect. I'm going to jump right in. Don't be alarmed at this question. But if Bolsonaro wins, how beeped? Is Brazil? Let's just say that already after the first round, mm. uh, we know a lot more about what Brazil is going to look like mm. simply because of the results in congressional elections. There was a very clear uh, shift in in the composition of both the House and the Senate towards allies of Bolsonaro. So whether Bolsonaro wins himself. Or not, you know, it, it still matters. But you know, Brazil is a country of a very strong Congress with very many parties in it, and also very strong governors, state governors. So the fact that Bolsonaro's allies have been doing very well in both of these institutions, we already know that Brazil that even if Lula ends up winning, you know, after his you know first round lead, he will be governing a country in which many people who see the country like Bolsonaro does. Uh, will be in positions of power and in places that way they can frustrate his agenda. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to uh, kind of want to talk about some of that cooperation. You know, in America these days, the opposite party does not play ball with, you know, the other, like, you know, Biden's president. And if the Republicans take the House, they're not going to play ball, you know, advancing his agenda. What is the cooperation like in Brazil? Do you think with Lula coming in and maybe like the composition of the House and Senate, you know, it's with these more right wing parties, are they going to play ball? Are they going to put country first or are they not with it? Yeah. So in Brazil, traditionally, because of a very diverse picture in the Senate where we witnessed two, three dozen parties at a time, uh, you basically ended up governing in the middle. There's been been the central, the sort of great center. And traditionally, basically, whoever's been in power uh, would cut deals with the sort of block of centrist power players, but power brokers. But now going into this election, you know, in this runoff specifically, we don't really know, you know, what it's going to look like because it's increasingly looks like that it's possible that there's a stronger rightist block forming in Congress. The P5 
PSDP, the traditional sort of social democratic party in Brazil that used to be the sort of more rightist or centrist alternative to the workers party that Lula represents. And PSDP is now the party of uh, Lula's running mate has been uh, performing really not well at all. Hasn't been sort of wiped, been wiped off Brazil's political map, but it's definitely not a power broker of any kind anymore, which suggests that Brazil's political spectrum has moved so much further to the right that it's very difficult to see a centrist block of the kind that has basically governed Brazilian politics for over 30 years now being formed anymore. So the answer is, we don't really know. There's a very real possibility of something resembling gridlock for the first time occurring in Brazil. If we have Lula as president, and at the same time, some of the more centrist parties uh, of the past, instead want to stand in opposition to him. And they'll have the votes to do so together with this growing rightist bloc. Are the parties, the you know, these more right-wing parties, are they going to take orders from Bolsonaro potentially if he's outside of office? Is he going to say, hey, guys, I don't agree with this, block it, and they're going to listen? So he's definitely, you know, whether he wins or not, he has created a certain brand of politics and his own party, known as the Liberal Party, is now a big block of, a, you know, around 100 deputies in the House. So we're looking at a major political force and not just his coalition, but just his own party. So definitely, this is not a man who's going to go quietly. You know, if he loses, he's not going to go quietly. There's going to be protestation over the election. But at the same time, even if he then goes, he's going to keep on making noise. Absolutely. Scale from one to 10, how likely are we going to get a January 6th situation? So this is where the lack of a two-party political system means that there's no party that's institutionally aligned to go that far to the brink. And as you know, and we're still t- dealing with the old Congress until January. So it's the Congress that's sitting now, not the Congress that's been elected. So as a result, uh, it, it, I do think in the U.S. we have to look at, in that specific case, at the role that specifically one of the you know big parties in the in the U.S. system played in allowing things to get that far. In Brazil, that role would be in all likelihood uh, played by some sort of security force. I mean, people have been throwing around all kinds of different possibilities, you know, whether it's the military or the, you know, federal police or any, any of those. But at the same time, I don't think we have really the kind of evidence to think that that's a sort of likely outcome. You know, unlike in the U.S., where we saw political power players and power brokers going, you know, in that direction uh, for, you know, clearly in November and December and already prior to that, to a certain extent. So what number was I supposed to pick again? Uh, from one to 10, likelihood. One to 10. I'd say I'm, I'm at a three. Oh, that's I'm low. at a three. Yeah, I, I would probably go even lower. Oh. You know, maybe it's because I thought, think that January 6th was incredibly. Yeah, uh, it was an 11. You know, it's very high <laughs> in terms of 
there was a chance that they could have offed the number two and the number three in the Republic. So this, you know, that's probably why I see that that is still as a sort of situation relatively, you know, relatively low on that danger level. Part of it's Brazil's voting system, unless something completely out of the blue happens, we will know on Sunday night. Uh, October 30th, what the results are. It's an incredible system for the widest reaches of the country. And also from, you know, places like the US where Brazilians vote, you know, all these votes are collected and we will know. So there's none of this like counting votes for days or weeks or, you know, any of this, we will simply know. So I think that helps as well. Uh, of course, the reason why I'm, you know, I was between in a three and a four. And what would push me towards the four is the fact that it now looks like it's going to be incredibly close. It's in some ways for those who have been sort of more concerned about that scenario. You know, this has been the scenario that they've been laying out for people who've been less concerned. And now I'm like, okay, if the 50 50 is about to come to pass, I mean, like, yes, under those circumstances and with, with the kind of sort of, you know, Brazil's a violent country in many ways anyway, but that violence hasn't always channeled into politics the way it has recently. I mean, of course, in 2018, there was an attempt at Bolsonaro's life, but, you know, there is a there is a possibility uh, that of sort of definitely of smaller scale violence, which is already happening, but in sort of orchestrated takeover. Brazilian institutions, some institutions are, you know, stronger, such as the voting system than in the U.S. in important ways. But then other institutions are weaker that can also be helpful, such as such as the party system. So it's more difficult to rally or institutionally expect certain kind of behavior because of party membership. We always hear about, um, you know, Bolsonaro kind of rolling with military generals, trying to like ingrain himself with the military. Is this chokehold that he has on the military? Is it overblown? Is it is it as strong as people are saying? Would they listen to him if if he you know wanted to stage a coup? Basically, so you know there are different stories here. One of the stories is that the credible sort of professionalism of Brazil's military, you know, since the 1980s. I mean, there's these are the same people who kicked Bolsonaro out of the military in the 1980s because he was a rebel within the ranks. Not everybody remembers this, but basically they found out that he had been conspiring to blow off some bombs. So, you know, that's... Which is nuts. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is this is the kind of character. And then he basically, at the Jesus. time, at the time, the reasoning for this was that the rank and file were not going to be treated well uh, in the transition to democracy. And that's how he made his political career. His political career was always that he was going to be for the rank and file of the military. There certainly are, you know, and we've seen people go through his administration, including his vice president, you know, who, by the way, very often openly disagrees with him. Uh, there was a moment when the Ukraine war started or the Russian attack at Ukraine started early this year when Bolsonaro was saying sort of nice things about Putin and Murat Bolsonaro's vice president was calling a NATO intervention in, uh, calling for a NATO intervention in Ukraine. So very openly saying very sort of different things. But there definitely is this sort of sense that, you know, he has been bringing 
the military into the picture. But at the same time, we also see that, you know, there was sort of much opposition when on sort of Brazil's Independence Day in, in September, he wanted to turn Brazil's Independence Day and associated military celebrations partially into his own campaign rally. And there was a lot of pushback against that as well. So we're talking about a very divided country. And because it is a very divided country, also within the military, you'll see people going, uh, you know, going different ways when they when they vote. So by the same time, I don't think we've seen enough evidence, any sort of hard evidence to believe that they would, you know, sort of take the leap and somehow sort of step in and put their uh, finger in the scale. Yeah. What are some of the long-term effects of Bolsonaro? Well, we were talking a little bit before we started recording that whether he wins or lose, there's going to be some impact that he has on Brazilian politics. What are, what are some of these lasting effects? So one has to do definitely with the sort of weight of the truth. I mean, now it's very clear that any kind of propaganda goes. So in the last four years ago, it was still the sort of campaigning against the Workers' Party, against Jilma Rousseff, who had been impeached. Uh, also, with Lula at the time, you know, a convict. There was much more sort of basis and reality, you know, in the sort of campaigning. This time around, some of the messages that you see popping up in social media, it's more like Lula has conversations with the devil. You know, I mean, that, yeah. you know, I'm not going to not no. going to come down hard on the reality of that or not but yeah. but but it's I, it also because i find difficult to assess whether that's the case as as many of us would <laughs> i suppose there's this clip going around of lula in a podcast and he's like you know talking about how you know you when you're debating with a pathological liar it's hard to put a stake in reality um, you know, are, do cows fly? You know, are, are elephants flying? Does Lula want to close churches? Um, and it's it's so bizarre because we're seeing some of these similarities in the U.S. Yeah, no, so that's, and, and if anything, Brazil, it, there's even more space for some of this. It has to do with the social media landscape. It's people being more on Telegram than, you know, you know Telegram and WhatsApp rather than a more open um uh, open platforms where at least some of this is visible and sort of controlled by somebody whether it's a facebook or a twitter or something like that so part of that is is there also like one of the things that i've definitely sort of looking back you know thought about quite a bit is that in this the kind of environment where the psdb you know was the rightest alternative in a country where there are incredibly high rates, uh, you know, against the legalization of abortion or or marijuana or anything else that you can really think of as a sort of hot button cultural issue, that in that kind of a setting, there was always kind of a danger that, you know, whatever sort of conservatism that would emerge it wouldn't simply be something like let's free up the markets a little bit, which, by the way, Bolsonaro also has as, as part of his agenda. And it helps explain why he got elected the first time around and, you know, helps explain why he's getting as close as he is this time around. 
But, you know, there's a lot of incredibly hot button culture war style issues that he can lean into in ways that even the U.S., it's hard to imagine that someone can do. Who should the U.S. want to win? This is a really tricky question. I know. The, the, way, to, <laughs> the way to think about it. So, you know, part of it is the Biden administration clearly has an issue with Bolsonaro for the reason that Bolsonaro was one of the people who, you know, the main sort of foreign person who did not want to recognize Biden as the legitimate head of state in the United States. And that will always be an issue in international relations. I don't think Bolsonaro necessarily, I don't know if he didn't care or if he realized how far he went into that, that it meant that he's not going to be getting any of these open bilateral meetings that he was getting with Trump. But I, I have a sense that it played pretty well with his base in in Brazil. But let's just say the way to think about it, I think, is that Bolsonaro may have maybe in a better position to offer more to the U.S., you know, openness, corporation. But he also, you know, the U.S., the U.S. and for a large extent Europe as well, will be in a position to accept less. So it's reversed with Lula. You know, the U.S. and Europe will be in a great position to accept something from Lula. But Lula, at the same time, it, you know, he's, he's a pragmatist. I mean, he's a pragmatist. Because he's a pragmatist, he has had close relations, you know, with the leaders of Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua. Something that, you know, Bolsonaro, by the way, uses incredibly effectively. But, you know, as much as he's a man of the left. He's a, we we saw already, you know, his first administration in for 2003-2010 or his first time around as president, a second time around as president, that he's a pragmatist. So he will, you know, try to be friendly with the US, but in terms of who's backing him, in you know, there may be less on offer for in in the bilateral relationship. The first time around, Lula played a big role in blocking the free trade area of the Americas, which, you know, if that had happened, we would be looking at a very sort of different kind of picture in terms of the level of integration throughout the Western Hemisphere and the kind of questions that now are being had about, you know, how much is, you know, Brazil deal with trade with China and where does China come in? And these kinds of questions just wouldn't necessarily be on the table at all in the same way if we were looking at a more integrated economic space. But yeah, it's 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 tough to tell. I mean, I think that's the main the main question really is, you know, something's someone's going to have to move at some point. I mean, it would be very difficult for the current administration in the US to go back and be like, "Oh, I guess you're here to stay. I guess your style of politics are here to stay." Yeah. And now we have to take back the fact that you've been shut. We've been shunning you for all these years, despite the reasons, obviously being in many ways understandable because of the illegitimacy stamp yeah. that you know Bolsonaro put on Biden's administration. Yeah, when Lula was president, twenty million people came out of poverty. Is has Brazil gotten poorer uh, because of Bolsonaro? Yeah. So Bolsonaro. Have Brazilians gone poor because of Bolsonaro? So in the last year, he has been, despite all the constitutional limits to election year spending on welfare, 
he got Congress to go along and do a lot of welfare spending just in the last few months. So we're looking at a set of Brazilians who've been, you know, been getting impoverished since 2013, the start of the long political crisis in Brazil. And in the last few months, they've actually been doing better than many people expected. Inflation has been more under control than many people expected. And also, this welfare spending has been targeting them. So they definitely haven't been rich, getting you know richer, but that might not be the perspective that people have when they go to vote on Sunday. They may actually think that you know we could be doing a lot worse than we are, and that you know it looked like we were sliding in that direction for a while. Um, the other one I was going to uh, ask is who's gotten really rich during uh, Bolsonaro's term? So. Bolsonaro's term has really been a struggle in many ways, politically, uh, politically, economically, Brazil, because of COVID, that there's been some sort of recovery within the ranks of big business that were really upset by uh, the corruption scandals, the Lava Jato, the Operation Carver scandals, starting in 2014, which went through all the Brazilian political elites, Brazilian, <clears throat> Brazilian business uh business uh, sectors in general but i think what's really important is under bolsonaro who's really benefited is in, in brazil is agribusiness sort of the land hungry agribusiness and it would really be in the interest of not you know definitely of brazilians that you know other sectors would get stronger you know industry manufacturing uh services tech you, yeah you, you you name it you name it because right now, I mean, agribusiness has a lot of clout in in the Bolsonaro uh, political coalition. And that's obviously and the clout that agribusiness has is creating all sorts of issues uh, with in the relations between the US, Europe and other places as well. So, I mean, that the sort of wealth of agribusiness is probably the most uh, most obvious thing that's happened, that agribusiness has been getting what, you know, becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger part of the Brazilian economy uh, throughout this long political crisis when basically everything else has suffered for nine or so years. All right. I, I told you I was not going to keep you too long. So last question, who wins Sunday? Ooh. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is a, this is, a, this is a hard one. Yeah. It's horrible. This is, this <laughs> horrible is, question. this is, this is, this is, this is truly terrible. So, the two ways to think about this. One way to think about it is that the winner of the first round has always won. Uh, you know, as okay. long as we, that's we, as, as long as, as long as we remember. The other way to think about it is that the incumbent, whenever they're you know running, they also win. <clears throat> I, <Okay. laughs> I, let's just say that. My baseline scenario is a Lula win based on the data that we have. But if I had to put, you know, one to one odds money on, you know, you know, one, one of them, you know. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Laurie, I'm so, so scared for what you're about to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would put my money on Bolsonaro. Oh, I, I. There is tremendous the sense that I'm seeing in terms of the the dynamics. Uh. Go, 
that have been building up through September uh, have only been strengthening in October. Uh, and then the crazy polling where this was supposed crazy to be a polling, landslide and it wasn't. The crazy polling, you know, but luckily I'm not a betting man. As a sort of, <laughs> as a sober analyst, you know, yeah. I would still go Lula. But if I felt the urge to put money on something, mm. I would put the money on Bolsonaro. Wow. But that's how close it is. It, yeah. I'm divided. Yeah. Wow. I I can't thank you enough for your expertise on this. This this was amazing. Laurie, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the Delve. Thank you, Shelly, for so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll hear from Adriana now. Adriana, thank you so much for meeting with me and coming on the Delve. I'm so excited for this conversation. Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. We are also very excited because this is the high topic here at the moment. You're you're not joking. It really is the highest topic. First question of the day. If Bolsonaro wins, how beeped is Brazil? Well, I think that we will be in very hard trouble, uh, especially talking about indigenous rights and talking about sustainability. If Bolsonaro wins, I think that we will be too much far from avoiding the tipping point in the Amazon. So I see our elections as the biggest climate event this year in the whole world. We were talking about this in the production team. We were talking about who gets hurt. You know, if Lula win, who gets hurt? If Bolsonaro win, who gets hurt? And if Lula wins, maybe like some taxes might rise. You know, some wealthy people might have to pay a little bit more. If Bolsonaro wins, the entire world gets hurt. Yes, completely, because uh, the policy from Bolsonaro to the Amazon was to open uh, all the traditional territories and protected areas to illegal activities. And he already have a lot of bills of law in Congress that he aims to approve so that he turns what is illegal deforestation nowadays into legal deforestation. So that would, for example, allow Brazil to say that he is uh, fulfilling his uh, targets in the Paris Agreement because the targets are, are all set on the basis of illegal deforestation. But if they turn that into legal deforestation, he can say that he is uh, achieving those goals, you know, and that will make a mess yeah. in all the expectations in terms of reduction of emissions. Yeah. Is it possible to quantify the negative impacts of Bolsonaro? Is it is it possible to say he's done this to our country and it's made us X percent poorer? He's done this and we've lost X percent. Can you put it in a number? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not the best person on numbers, but I can say that, for example... Illegal gold mining inside indigenous territories has increased around 400% during Bolsonaro government. So imagine four more years of that. That's insane. That's an insane number. Wow. Yeah. And who are the folks that are extracting this gold? Who's who's doing the illegal mining? Well, there is, uh, of course, a lot of unemployment people that goes after what, any kind of activities where they can try to find some money. So if you think about, for example, these people that are now inside the territories, 
They are probably the same that were working in building big dams in former governments, and they are there inside the territories, but they are not working by themselves. They are working for very rich people. So, for example, one of the last police operations inside the Yanomami territory have found out more than 80 airplanes. 80 airplanes? So, yes. So this means that people that are there operating, they They're have money enough. The yeah. Yes. They have money enough to have the airplanes. The big machines that they have to buy to make the, these big operations are really expensive machines, like one million reais each, something around $200,000. You're not just one going machine. to a rock and with a hammer. Yeah, no, no. It's <laughs> a very industrial and big enterprise, you know. So we're talking about great operations, very connected to organized crime, using, of course, a lot of people to work to them. You know? I'm still stuck at 400% because that, that's yeah. a crazy number. That's an insane number. And, and I want to talk a little bit about indigenous rights because I feel like not enough attention is, is put onto this. What have been some of the rights that have been kind of uh, negatively affected? How have communities, indigenous communities, been negatively affected by Bolsonaro? Well, indigenous rights are set in Brazilian constitution in a way that the territories belong to the government, to the union, and indigenous people have exclusive use of the natural resources. The exception is done for undersoil resources, for mining, for example. No. But the constitution says that we must have a very specific legislation to allow this kind of exploitation and that all the natural resources inside indigenous territories belong to indigenous people. What the government has done is that he didn't manage to change the constitution or to approve a new legislation, but they started to allow people to get in the territories, you know, they weakening all the enforcement of the legislation and they promoted the idea of opening these territories for gold mining and other economic activities from people from outside. So they have weakening these rights. They haven't go, uh, made any more demarcation of land, although there is still a lot of land to be demarcated and recognized. And also, there are different steps in the procedures of land recognition for indigenous people in Brazil. So it starts with identification, then the land is demarcated, then it is homologated. The government established some measures to say that he would only attend and send attend demands from indigenous people that are inside the areas that are fully recognized in the last level, which is the homologation. That goes against the idea of the constitution that recognized that the land is from indigenous people, despite the bureaucracy goes on. So the government reduced a lot the indigenous communities he recognizes as indigenous communities and that he needs to attend with politics, you know, with public policies, for example. So that made the communities more vulnerable. That allowed this increasing of illegalities and deforestation inside the 
territories. And there was also a lot of violence because this government also opened all the, how to say, the control on guns. They started to allow people to register as hunters and then buy a lot of guns. And then we saw the levels of uh, murder and violence against indigenous people when other traditional communities increase a lot. You know? So different yeah. levels of uh, attack yeah. on their rights. Yeah, that, no, that, like, that hurts. That hurts my heart. That's horrible to hear. Are there representatives, maybe senators or deputies in, in Congress that are fighting for indigenous rights? Do they have a loud voice? What does that look like? Yeah, they are a minority. We have at the moment one federal deputy, which is a woman, an indigenous woman, Joina uh, Wapishana, just one. Okay. Now, in the first round of elections, we have elected two. Okay, okay. So it's doubled, but still uh, very few people. Of course, there are other senators and deputies that also support indigenous rights, but they are still in a minority. Although we have to recognize that Bolsonaro didn't manage to do everything he wanted because there was a strong mobilization from civil society in Brazil. Indigenous people went to the Supreme Court and managed to stop some of these measures that the government wanted to pass. So we managed to control part of the, the damage with a huge mobilization and with other sectors as artists, researchers, people in universities, you know, supporting indigenous people to stand uh, for their territories and rights. And what changes if Lula wins on Sunday? What is going to change? Well, I think that the first thing that's going to change is that uh, that will be a sign for those that act illegally in the ground that their action will not be supported anymore. That, like that party is over. <laughs> yes. The music's definitely. cut off. Like no more. Yeah, so yeah. of course he will have a strong job to put these people out. And also Lula got a lot of different people together to make this alliance so that he could fight against the Bolsonaro. And for sure it's not going to be easy to have good decisions regarding uh, rights and social environmental issues. But at least there will be dialogue. There will be open space for social participation. And he has already assumed his commitments with bringing back the procedures of demarcation and taking the illegality out of the territories. So I think that the most important thing will be this sign, you know, this political sign. And there will be a strong work to, to make things happen. But at least we will be more secure that we can do that without having a government fighting against us. I want to talk a little bit about women in particular and how Bolsonaro's, I guess, lack of environmental policies, how has it affected women? both indigenous and Brazilian women in general? Well, I think that, first of all, Bolsonaro is a misogynist. Yeah, certified gold star. Yeah, Yeah. misogynist. Yeah, Yeah. misogynist. So as he is a misogynist, we have seen 
that the majority of policies to support women in different levels were gone. So I think that one important thing will be to bring back you know, protection for women, support for women, recognition for women's efforts. What Bolsonaro did by opening these areas for illegality and avoiding the protection of these areas was to increase the vulnerability of women with these illegal people inside the territories. So unfortunately, we have information about rape and about a lot of violence against women. We know that when this kind of activities happen in the ground, a lot of men working on an illegal basis without any kind of control, that affects directly women in the ground. It's like a lawless territory at this point, because if you're not even stopping illegal mining, you know, how can you protect the citizens of that, yes. of that land? Okay. And I, I like to end these things. I have two questions to end this. One, what makes you hopeful for the future? We can start with that one. Well, I'm hopeful because I think that Lula will win. We, we have a very stable situation in terms of uh, surveys. Uh, we can see uh, that there is a huge difference between them and we, we believe Lula will win. And that by taking Bolsonaro out, we will be able to join efforts to rebuild the institutions, the legal framework, and I think that we are also hopeful because Bolsonaro didn't manage to do everything he wanted. We managed to set some limits with the support of court, with the support of the Congress, and with a huge mobilization. And especially indigenous people were very strong in this resistance. They were all the time in the streets. You know, they never gave up fighting. And as Ayutthaya Krenak always says, you know, they have been fighting for centuries there, you know. So they are used to that and they give us this hope. They are very well informed. They are really engaged on that. So I think that we, we have reasons to believe that we will overcome that. Good. My second question was going to be, who wins Sunday? But I, I think we know the answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> I think Lula wins. I yeah. hope Lula wins. I think that Brazil and the world needs Lula to win. Yeah, literally the world. Uh, the world's depending on it. Perfect. Yeah. Adriana, thank you so much for taking some time and coming on the Dell. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. We almost forgot the podcast. I want to hear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every week, we provide our communities a small podcast called Copio Parente, bringing information about Brasilia to the communities so that they can follow on what's going on here that is related to their rights. Yeah. So we make it and send it through WhatsApp and also in all the platforms. Yeah. And I think that this podcast, Copio Parente, is also a very strong tool for mobilization and resistance. You know? I'll send you a link so that you yeah. can listen. And can you say it in Portuguese, how people can find it? O Copio Parente é um podcast semanal com as notícias de Brasília, 
para os povos indígenas e povos da floresta e pode ser achado no Spotify. As a foreigner looking in, I can never imagine telling Brazilians how to vote. I would just encourage them to think about their future, the environment and the planet and the special place Brazil has among the nations. I want to give a special thanks to our awesome guests, Lauri and Adriana, and to our listeners out there. Thanks for tuning into this special episode. We'll be back to kick off season six next week. I'm Chaylen, and this is The Delve.